Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. What a machine. Is it switched on now? It is. Well, I'm hoping to um, see a lot of people who are tuned into this podcast. <laughs> I've never done a podcast before, so I have absolutely no idea about it. But I'm sure that lots of people know what a podcast is. Hello and welcome to Now Where Were We? I'm Bob Cryer. And as promised, here is the long-awaited tribute edition dedicated to my father and co-host, the much-loved and much-missed Barry Cryer. In this episode, we'll not only showcase some of our favourite moments from the series, but also speak to three new people we know Dad would have wanted to be included in a second series that sadly never happened. They are the wonderful Sandy Toxvig, the brilliant Rebecca Front, and the incomparable Barry Humphreys. Dad was a huge fan of them all. And it's worth mentioning at this point that Barry, Sandy and Rebecca will all be involved in some form or other at the upcoming Barry Cryer A Celebration. It's a stage show which is taking place at the Lyric Theatre in London on the 13th of June. We'll be celebrating Dad's remarkable life, along with Bill Bailey, Harry Hill, Maureen Lippman, Michael Palin and some of the guests that you'll already have heard on this podcast, like Giles Brandreth and Stephen Fry. Dad spent his life making people laugh and left behind him a legacy of fun, joy, love and silliness that this show will hope to emulate and celebrate. We're also raising money for one of Dad's favourite charities, the Royal Variety Charity, who aside from organising that famous show in front of the royal family, also look after performers from the industry who've fallen on hard times. Dad was the first to say how lucky he felt he'd been throughout his career. Tickets are available now from NIMAXTheatres.com. And so, to our favourite moments from the series. And what sort of silliness did Dad enjoy the most? Well, jokes, of course. And here he is telling one of his all-time favourites to Danny Baker. Yeah, here we go. It's like the parrot joke. Oh, ladies well, and gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen. I collect them. It's the definitive. A woman sees this beautiful blue and gold parrot in the shop and she says to the man, he's gorgeous. How much? He said, 20 quid, 20 pounds. She said, he's beautiful. He said, well, yeah, I'm sorry, but he's got form. He's got history. He was in a brothel. And to put it delicately, he's got quite a colourful vocabulary. Oh, I'll take it that took the parrot back to a flat, took the cover off, and the parrot looked round and said, new place, very nice. <laughs> and the two daughters walked in and the parrot said, new place, new girls, very nice indeed. And her husband walked in and the parrot said, hello, Keith. <laughs> Pure joy. And from one Baz to another, and someone who will be performing at the Lyric Theatre celebration in June, it's the irrepressible Barry Humphreys. I'm looking forward to this event at the Lyric Theatre in Shaftesbury Avenue, celebrating 
Barry Cryer, my namesake. We're both called Barry, and he used to call me Baz, B-A-Z, which is a vulgar abbreviation of our names. So I'd get a call, unexpected moments, hey, Baz, it's Barry. I knew immediately who the other Barry was, and we all both laughed at our period names. It was very much a, a name of the late 1930s. I don't know what movie star we were named after, but it was a popular name. It's the male equivalent of Shirley, incidentally. If we'd been girls, we would have been called Shirley Cryer. Sounds good. Uh, I, uh, I'm not sure what I'm going to say at this event, except how, with what great affection I held Barry Cryer. The noise in the background, by the way, is a pub, which is probably appropriate, though Barry was never seen to be the worse for drink. He'd seen too many casualties in the world of comedy, I suppose. Um, he remembered everyone's birthday, and he was one of those ex exceptional people who had an absolutely unselfish admiration for other people in the business. There was no other agenda. He just liked funny people, and he really brought a smile to everybody. Uh, I'm going to, when I'm chatting on the stage, um, I won't be droning on, but when I'm at this tribute, which is going to be a celebration rather than a, a valediction, it's going to be um, incidents in which Barry Cryer sort of came to my rescue, in a sense, psychologically. He knew somehow when one was a bit down and when one needed cheering up. Uh, I'm surprised, really, that he, to, to know that he ever thought about himself. Uh, he was totally unusual in the business that he was in, because we're all narcissists, we're all totally selfish, but Cryer, apart from his encyclopedic knowledge of jokes, was always thoughtful and supportive. I still can't believe he's no longer with us, but perhaps in a sense he is. Many's the time he's told me that he's accosted friends and colleagues in pubs and in the streets and in restaurants, and he's sensed, in a way, they needed a bit of cheering up, and he would come out with a joke you'd never heard before. It was sometimes outrageous, always brilliant, and his love of words was important. He wrote very well. He knew that comedy was a form of poetry. It depended on meter, on timing, and sometimes rhyme. He also wrote verses, of course. The less said about them, the better. <laughs> I like to think he's here now, waiting in the wings to go on. He's not in the top rank of renowned comedians, but behind every good comedian stands 
the ghost of Barry Crocker. No surprise to hear Barry mentioning Dad's infamous love of jokes. So why don't we hear him telling another one of his favourites? And yes, a parrot is involved in this one as well. No, a guy said to his mate, my parrot's driving me mad of foul language. And his mate said, stick him in the fridge for five minutes, he'll get the message. So he said to his parrot, you're going to stop swearing. And the parrot said, why don't you? So he got hold of it and stuck it in the fridge, closed the door, five minutes, took it out. You're going to stop swearing? And the parrot said, all right. And the parrot looked back in the fridge and said, what did that chicken do? <laughs> The wonderful comedy actor Rebecca Front would have been our last guest in the first series, but unfortunately an outbreak of COVID over Christmas meant we had to postpone the recording. It was a real shame, because Dad adored Rebecca and she adored him. In fact, in recent years, he and my mum Terry enjoyed going for Sunday lunches with Rebecca and her family. So it was lovely to catch up with her as she shared her memories of Baz. People really, they just, you know this, but people adored your dad. And I think it's so lovely to get an opportunity to be in a room with lots of people saying, God, what, what an amazing time to have been alive. What I've been asking people is, is how did my dad make you feel? Oh, that's such a good question, actually. You know what? I think one of the things that I felt with your dad, and I know that this was true of, of all the people that I was able to introduce him to at, at our lunches and so on, was he had this real gift for making everybody feel special. And I, I noticed that the very first time I met him, I remember thinking, oh, I'm going to meet the great Barry Cry, you know, and he's just worked with everybody and, and he won't know who I am and I'll make sure I introduce myself. And, but you honestly just felt like he was your oldest friend and he knew everything you'd done and because he was such a comedy geek, wasn't he? So he did. He knew everything I'd done and he knew everybody I'd worked with and he was like, oh, I was, I was talking to Armando just the other day and, yes, you know, yes. he knew everything about everything to do with comedy. And it was only later that I discovered, as I got to know him better, that he genuinely would listen to Radio 4 all the time or, uh, you know, and then he'd then he'd phone up and he'd say, I just heard you in that. What was that thing you were in? And I'd go, oh, that's God, I recorded that 10 years ago, you know, but I can't even remember. Oh, it was very good, actually. Who wrote it? He was just, he had this encyclopedic love of comedy. I think they keep four extra going just just for dad. I think it was... <laughs> yeah. Well, kind of assumed that he programmed it. I mean, your dad presumably was was responsible for four extra because it was yeah, it's entirely his. He just knew everybody. He would have known everybody in it. But yeah, that thing of making everybody feel special, I think, is is unique because you can't actually fake that. And we've all met people who who are very friendly and who are very sort of generically charming and. Um, and sometimes that comes across as patronising, and sometimes that comes across as very sweet and lovely. But with your dad, it was completely genuine. He just really loved everybody he met, really brought out the best in people. Um, and consequently was, I mean, from, from the point of view of, you know, my husband who loves to host a lunch party, why would you not want Barry there as often as possible? Because he was just that magic, you know, sort of sparkly glitter that he would walk in He'd have a, a kaleidoscopic knowledge of jokes, which he'd just kind of dot through the conversation. And he'd remember having met people before and they would be thrilled that he remembered them. And he was just utterly charming and delightful. And it actually was genuine. So that's my my takeaway 
from your dad is that I've met so many people in this business who are charming and delightful and really lovely company. But but your dad took that to another level because he, he really cared about people's careers and what they were doing and who they'd worked with and and whether something had gone well or not so well. And, and you know, he was he just uh, he was properly kind of present in a room, wasn't he? He yeah. really existed within a space and knew the people he was talking to and engaged with you. And it's so flattering that, you know, it just is such a lovely thing. And one thing that's come up quite a lot speaking to people is that um, they were surprised, given his career, that he didn't feel more threatened by younger comics. That was a classic uh, threshold moment in the early 80s, obviously, with alternative comedy, whatever that meant. But um, mm. and rather than, you know, see them, them as competition, he saw a, a, a sort of a common thread in what they were trying to do. So in a in a Rick or an aide, you know, he, he, he would have seen a Spike Milligan or a Peter Sellers. What's, what's quite interesting about the common thread of, of, of people picking up on that is they've still obviously seen so much envy in the business that it's quite surprising when dad didn't have any. And I think it, I think it went deeper than, than not just envying younger people. I think he was so curious about comedy. He was so interested in it just as a science um, that he genuinely wanted to move with the times because he didn't know where it was taking him that was the feeling I got so I, I always felt like he was comedically he was on this wild ride you know he was just looking around thinking wow god that's so interesting I did not see that coming and if you think about the kind of jokes that your dad told and I am the world's worst person at being able to rehash jokes and trust me I have tried to rehash some of the jokes your dad's told me in the past, and I and I'm always. Met I won't. With, I won't ask you to do so now. No, please, no, please don't, because I'm always met with the kind of. <laughs> really? Is that, is that is that exactly what Baz said? Speaking as his son, the thing that you know often would happen is people assume that I would tell jokes exactly like my father, which the first thing my dad would have said was, "Well, don't try and tell a joke like me. Yeah, tell it, tell it like yourself." Right. I think when I was younger, I would try and do that and launch into a joke like he told it. But then the fear would cross my face when I, I just, re I've completely forgotten the punchline or I'd missed out a key element. Yes, exactly. And that's what I do. I haven't got, I just haven't got a joke telling knack at all. But one of the really interesting things about your dad's jokes, I think, was that they never quite went where you thought they were going to go. And I think that that's really significant, but because that's one of the reasons why he was able to not just keep up with with the changing fashions of comedy, but actually kind of always lead the ch changing fashions of comedy because his jokes were always a bit left field anyway. They were always, they didn't rely on stereotypes. So he could start a joke with, you know, there's an Englishman, an Irishman and a Scotsman, but none of those stereotypes did what you expected the Englishman, no. the Irishman and the Scotsman to do. And one of the things that really we used to thoroughly enjoy when when he came here for lunch was that we'd always have a table full of a real kind of mixed bag of ages and and careers and you know all sorts of things and my kids I'm sure yours are the same are, are of a generation who are quite rightly what pejoratively would be called woke I don't like to think of it as that I think they just care they're, yeah. they're empathetic and they care and they're thoughtful so they were you know they're very much of that generation and your dad would sit there and he's you know he's a grandparent age for them and he'd launch into a joke and you'd think oh how's this going to play out <laughs> and it would be brilliant he'd pitch it brilliantly yeah, yeah. because he got it he just understood their sensibilities 
he wasn't having to battle his own sensibilities. You know, he never got the feeling he was thinking, oh, God, I better change the punchline of this one. Cause he just made it naturally funny because he'd it would swerve off in a weird sort of... And that comes back to him wanting to make people feel comfortable. And if yeah. there was... I mean, a lot of comedians that obviously thrive on the opposite, don't they? they yeah. yeah. I mean, that, and that is a, you know, legitimate comic form that, that works well in some environments, but not necessarily at a Sunday multi-generational no. lunch so exactly that's right but your dad this is why he kept being invited back you know because he would <laughs> he would come armed with a with a load of jokes and they were completely appropriate and completely mad and funny and everybody would come away saying god he's just even more brilliant than i thought he was going to be <laughs> he wasn't necessarily interested in telling political jokes in that sense and of course there's obviously often a danger of being identified with one political standpoint that then goes out of fashion and dad perhaps cut through all of that. I think that's absolutely right, that his jokes, they had this wonderful surreal quality, but they were actually just about human nature. Even a parrot joke for your dad was really always about, the, the parrot had a personality, you know? <laughs> and it was actually always about a type, of, a type of human being. And that was so, it was just so clever, the way he managed to make jokes universal, because it's, it, you're quite right. Humour can actually be really divisive. And that thing of punching down and punching up and and making assumptions about that your politics is better than somebody else's politics, it can be incredibly exclusive. And I hate that in comedy. But but I think people do it sometimes just because you don't know any other way to be. But your dad managed to just sail through that. And that's that's why he was friends with really, really popular mainstream comics and really, really kind of, you know, politically maybe very left-wing comics or whatever. Everybody loved him because actually what he was interested in was human nature and also the science of the joke. I think he really did have a sense of, of the kind of mathematical placement of where things should land yeah. to make a joke work. Uh, but, but without analysing it, he hated analysing comedy in that way and that's interesting. The, the quote he would always lift, which is from E.B. White, bizarrely, the author of Charlotte's Web. Right. And you've probably heard this one, which is comedy is like dissecting a frog. Nobody laughs and the frog dies. Right. And I'm sure he won't mind me saying this. During the Frost Report, there was a bit of sort of matchmaking going on amongst all that, that amazing fine vintage of, of comedy writers like uh, uh, Feldman and Took. And uh, obviously Dick Vosborough came from that, David Nobbs. Uh, and mm. then you've got the proto-Python. So Mike and, and uh, Terry were, were there. But there was also John Cleese and Graham Chapman, two very different kinds of writers who then went on to write together. Dad sort of courted both of them. And him, he and John Cleese sat down to write a sketch once. And it just didn't work because Dad was all about the white heat of the moment. And if it didn't work, screw up the paper and throw it in the bin. And then John would go and get the paper out of the bin and go, OK, why did this not work? Or... Let's just have a look at the and dad, dad was already sailing on to the next thing, which is what right. he enjoyed about with Graham. And I've I always wanted to ask John, obviously can't sadly can't ask Graham now, but how they got over that difference in their writing styles. But but yeah. that, um, with Graham, he just found someone who it was the the um, the truth of mood that E.M. Forster talked about that idea that. This is not necessarily true for any other time other than now. Yeah. And then obviously it was 12 o'clock and it was time to go to the pub. So um, yeah. that sort of affability of, of the moment. But that um, analysing comedy, because he always felt that, that, again, it goes back to his humility, uh, a sort of 
you know, Yorkshire upbringing, classic sort of don't get too big for your boots. So, you know, I tried to write a, an autobiography with him because his, his, his agent and the publisher said, you've written these books of anecdotes, Barry, which were meant to be autobiographies, but you're not in them. So oh, really, he, he was never comfortable talking about himself and he would feel the same way with his comedy that analysing it would somehow aggrandise mm. himself and sort of give him a status that he wasn't comfortable with. That's so interesting. I would never have thought of that because I, I kind of get the thing of that when you're dancing, you don't want to stop and think, what am I doing? Like, where, where is yeah. my weight? Is my weight on my left foot or my right foot? Because then you just fall over. So I would have assumed it would be that, that that would be why he would want to just keep moving on to the next joke and the next joke and the next joke. Because if you stop and think too much, you just you lose your balance. But that's so interesting if it's also an element of I don't want to I don't want to look like I'm Mr. Lardy Dar clever clogs. I'm just writing jokes here. But you're right about the, the, the dancing analogy in that music is incredibly, you know, it's quite a well-worn idea that comedy and music, are good bedfellows and they're kind of twins yeah. from the same from the same mother. And that, that dad dad worked on the rhythm and the music of, of the jokes to such an extent that it that, that it did all have to be in the same rhythm because that was the way he learned it like a like a piece yeah. of music like a musician uh, an instrumentalist would know the particular sort of resonance and the beats and also the the kind of yeah. the emphasis i suppose and definitely i mean even as somebody who is terrible at telling jokes and uh, you know i am but i know that just from comedy acting that it there is just a rhythm and sometimes you know a line is just wrong and it needs an extra beat and it might just be the word just or it might be another and or something but if you don't have that there that bit of repetition or that bit of alliteration or something it just won't land properly and that's the side of it I find fascinating yes well the one I always love to quote and sadly it's not one of dad's but it's talking to Galton and Simpson about the blood donor and uh, saying the line was originally a pint that's an armful right and then and then suddenly the quality you know the qualifiers yeah a pint that's nearly an armful a pint that's yeah. very nearly an armful for some yes. reason. <laughs> it's perfect. It's yeah. absolutely perfect. Yes, because it's so because it shows he's really thinking that through, and it suddenly becomes much funnier. It's not just at batting away. Yeah. It is as it's somebody kind of really thinking. Oh no, I don't, I don't think I want to give away quite that much. It's very very. Specific. You know, Dad would Dad would be very disappointed in me now analyzing comedy like that, but. It, but yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm celebrating it. That's what I'll say. Yeah. They're actually a, an example of people we have to thank in a way. I mean, I'll pay great tribute to dad's natural, innate sense of, of friendliness and wanting to make people feel comfortable. But he always said that people like Galton and Simpson and Muir and Norden, for, for the teenagers in the, uh, in the audience who remember David Nixon, uh, he worked at the City Varieties when dad first started working there backstage. And he said it was through people like that who held their hand out David Nixon got him agent interviews and, and uh, got him his, his um, audition really? at the windmill. And mm. he's always been grateful and always saw these people paying it forward, but also, you know, reaching down to, to people coming up in the industry. Yeah. And he learned a lot from them. And he said Galton and Simpson were very welcoming when he first started contributing material as a, as a review writer. So that when, you know, he's only sort of three or four years older than Michael Palin, when they all met in this Methodist hall to, to put together the Frost Report, and get the writers mm. together. Michael Palin always tells the story. He said, your father was the first person to cross the floor and, and shake yeah. my hand and say, welcome. And you never forget that, do you? You never no. forget the people who 
who sort of guide you along. And, and it's not something that people often associate with comedy, but no, actually no. I, I, think, I think unfairly. My yeah. dad actually has a, a little story, which I remember him telling your dad over, over lunch. So my dad, for, for a while, when he was at art school, he used to make some money as a singer. He was, sang with a, a big band called the Oscar Raven Big Band. And they were quite well known. And so dad was a sort of semi-professional singer at the age of 23 or something. And he'd go around to various big events and weddings and mitzvahs and he, you know, and, and do these gigs. And on one of them, and we actually found the playbill recently, he was on the bill with Max Miller. Max Miller was the, the oh, top of the bill. Yeah. And the Oscar Raven band were there. And my dad was, you know, was the first singer up after the interval. And dad used to get incredibly nervous. And he, which is why he never carried on professionally. He gave it up because it was making him ill. So he was, during the interval, he was pacing around backstage and Max Miller came up to him and said, all right, boy, you know, my dad said, yeah, very, very nervous. He went, who are you? And dad said, oh, my name's Charles Front. I'm, uh, I'm the, the singer. And apparently, you know, then the, the, the music started for the overture and Max Miller just kind of went, oh, you'll be fine, mate. And then he went on and, you know, he's Max Miller and he introduced, you know, he sort of did the big thing with the audience and the audience loved him. And then he went, well, ladies and gentlemen, I want to introduce you to one of my oldest and best friends now. He's a wonderful <laughs> young man and he's got the best voice in the business. And that was how he introduced my dad. Wow. Dad's never forgotten it because he yeah, said I've yeah, literally yeah. spoken to him for 30 seconds. But he but I got the best reception of my life, you know, <laughs> thanks to Max Miller. Isn't so they wonderful? could be like that when in those days. Like you say, that's it is an unfair label placed on comedy. I think from maybe a maybe a very specific period when when things were very political and divisive, and you know, all um, all human life is there in comedy. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have to take that route. Thank you so much for. Uh, uh, not for at all. Thank you for including me because you know I was such a such a fan of of your father's and. He was a lovely man. So, you know, I look forward to, to seeing you and celebrating his life properly. Here's to Baz. And, uh... Here's to Baz. Absolutely. Yeah. I'll go and raise a glass to him now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome back to Now Where Were We? Whilst listening to Rebecca Front, you might have noted that we talked about Dad's difficulty in writing anything close to an autobiography. He always felt much happier telling anecdotes about other people and felt reticent talking about himself. Well, on this podcast, many of his friends occasionally managed to get him to do just that. So here, in his own words, and pieced together from the entire series... His dad giving a short rundown of how he went from Barry Cryer, lead schoolboy, 
to Barry Cryer, beloved comedy institution, which is something he'd never say about himself. My dad died when I was five. I had no role model. I hardly knew the man. And Bob Mortimer said his dad died when he was seven. And he said, I realise I wanted to please people when he died. And I have to admit that when my dad went, I hardly knew the man, as I said, I got nobody to show off to. Oh, look at me, Dad. Look what I'm doing, Dad. So I confess, I think I must have decided I wanted to show off. But no, I wanted to be a journalist. I wanted to write. But I was a failure at university. BA England failed. Uh, and they made me honorary doctor of arts. Which university was this? Leeds. You got into Leeds University. Yes. But you didn't stay and then the they course. kicked me out. Yes. Because I was chasing girls and I was in the bar. I confess. You and did also get a gig, a professional gig, didn't you? After Well, that. a man came up to Leeds to see somebody and saw me in the student show, charity show, the Rag Review, and uh, offered me work. I couldn't believe what was happening. And then I made my professional debut in the City Varieties Theatre in my hometown. And television was now on the march. And the musicals of variety theatres were suffering. So they, they introduced strippers. So they lost the family audience. My first job, bottom of the bill, with strippers at the City Varieties, going home every night to supper with my mother. And I thought, oh boy, she must have thought, what is he doing? And I waited until the Wednesday. She never, ever said, how did it go tonight? She never asked. I gave up. I thought, well... But on the Saturday, there was a matinee. And I went in. The woman in the box office said, come here, come here. Was that your mother last night? I said, was what my mother last night? She said, I, I knew it was your mother. It was a small woman with the rain hat on. She came up to me and said, what time's Barry Cryer on? I said, in about 10 minutes, love. She said, can I buy a ticket? I thought, it's his mother. And I said, no, you can't buy a ticket. You're going in. And she got her shown in to the theatre. She was shown a seat. She didn't sit down. She stood at the back of the stalls. I did my act, and then she fled into the night. And I got home that night for supper. And I said, you came last night, didn't you? Yes, yes. And I waited. She said, the suit looked nice. (laughs) Yeah, I went to conquer London with a 17-day rail return ticket. I'm not making this up. Mentored and supported by David Nixon. I'd been his assistant, not on stage, in a pantomime. And David was marvellous to me. And uh, it wasn't working. I, I thought, I'm going back to Leeds, tail between my legs. But the day... Before the ticket was going to run out, I got an audition at the windmill. And, uh, oh, I thought, oh, boy. And that was six shows a day, six days a week. So I went on to do my audition, 12 minutes, I think, jokes and a song. And uh, then from the dark, this voice said, uh, you know any more jokes? It was a great Vivian Van Damme, the boss, VD, as he was known. (laughs) And I, I told him, you know another song? I said, yeah, but I haven't got any music. Ronnie will busk for you. This is Ronnie Bridges, who worked there, became a friend. So I sang another song. Thank you. I thought, oh, it's over. And another man who became a friend, John Law, came on the stage and said, dressing room 12A. I said, what? He said, you've got the job. 
That was 10.30 in the morning. I was on the stage at 20 past 12, midday, doing my 12 minutes. And the old man had me in his office between every show, between the fish tank and the desk, changed my act. You tell that too early, that's a good one. Tell that there, oh, here's what you could do. And I rang my dear mother, I said, I'm a windmill comedian. She got no idea what I was talking about. And it's been downhill ever since. It's been downhill, too early. What kind of comedian did you think you were going to be? And why did it then change into you being a writer of comedian? I had no plan. My whole life was a series of incidents. I don't think I saw any direction I wanted to go in. I just thought, I hope there's another job. One thing led to another, and I found myself script writing. I was writing the uh, nightclub shows for Danny LaRue, who was a big star in those days, with his own club in Hanover Square. Oh, Dan was amazing. We... We did the show one night. He was a lovely host and everything, and he's giving this woman a drink, and she said, Oh, Daddy, do you like dressing up as a lady? <laughs> yes, dear, do you? <laughs> you both met your wives whilst working. Uh, yes. My mum yeah. was a singer, dancer at Danny LaRue's club. Best thing that ever happened to me was uh, meeting her. I was sat standing next to the piano. I met my wife the very same day I met Ronnie Corbett. Tossed a coin and married. (laughs) (laughs) And, of course, that was... After writing the nightclub shows for Danny LaRue, David Frost saw a little thing I'd written in a review at the Fortune Theatre for Anna Quayle, the actress, and said, who wrote that? And uh, one thing led to another. David Frost came to Danny LaRue's club and everything, and you become one of the Frost gang. And, of course, all doors were open then. You could have been a rubbish writer. Well, he wouldn't have taken you on board, I suppose. But if you were known as a David Frost writer, everybody wanted to know. Ronnie said to me one day, he said, uh, I don't know what rung of a ladder you're on, Baz, but stay there. He said, you're always around, but nobody's pointing at you. (laughs) I'm the peripheral figure, the straight man, the co-writer, the... all over the place, the warm-up man. Yeah, but also, do you know, I have to say, probably one of the warmest actually, that I've met. Oh, and, and it's, it's true. And that, do you know oh, what it is? Thank you. It's it, No need to thank me. It's the truth. And because I think that, particularly with, with comedians, there are those comedians, one assumes all comedians want to make people laugh, but there are those who also want to be made to laugh. Oh, yeah. And, you know, there's and that suddenly divides that very large group into a much smaller one. But in terms of the warmth and encouragement, uh, I, d- I don't know anyone else who's who's been as consistent across the board. That is one of the greatest privileges of of when I tell people who my dad is, they recognise the surname. The first thing they do is smile because you have a very positive effect on people. I love people people laughing and it doesn't have to be me who makes them laugh. Graham Garden, my old friend, said, oh, Baz needs an audience. And I'd say, I prefer Baz needs people. Yeah, he's like a social... I'm terminally gregarious. And I love... I love laughing. I don't care where it goes. It doesn't have to be me making them laugh. And I'd want a conversation as well. I'm not just telling jokes, you know. I just, I'm a peopleaholic. (laughs) I'm not a workaholic. (laughs) One of the shows that Dad is most associated with is, of course, I'm Sorry I Haven't a Clue. It began in 1972, just a year before I was born. So I feel like in some ways, we've grown up together. Now I'll leave you to judge who's aged better. 
One of my dad's favourite panellists in later years was the delightful Swiss army knife, or should that be Danish army knife of comedy, Sandy Toxvig. And it's clear the affection was mutual. The wonderful thing about Barry is I remember uh, meeting him for the very first time, and of course he was a comedy legend and I was slightly terrified and a bit tongue-tied. I think I was the first, if if not the first, the second woman on uh, Clue, and uh, I didn't know how the boys were going to uh, welcome me. Barry was so wonderful. He always kissed me full on the lips. Can I just say, only man in the world to do that. Um, And uh, made me welcome from the beginning. And the wonderful thing was, if you got a big laugh, he laughed more than anybody. He he was never threatened by it. He never tried to top you. He just thought, yep, job done. There's the laugh, all finished. I think Barry will be remembered within the industry as being as being second to none. I, I don't think we'll ever see the like again. A man who so loved his work that he was carrying on touring right to the end, still making podcasts. Uh, I think this is probably an elaborate joke on his part. And he's off making a telly series somewhere. So that I'm looking forward to. I have had the best times, I think, in the whole of my show business career, sitting backstage with that man. He'd have a little beer, if I'm honest with you, just before the show. Uh, And I always thought it would take the edge off, but no, Barry was all edge. (laughs) He never stopped. Uh, That was fun. Being on stage with him was amazing. Uh, Being allowed to hear him sing, uh, particularly Elvis numbers, I think, were probably my favourites. But even better than that would be the train journey home. And you'd think, after a long show, he'd be all tired out. But no, we anecdoted from one station all the way home. I, five hours, I once remember, he didn't draw breath. And it was the most glorious thing in the world. I learned more about comic timing from that man on a single train journey than from anybody else in my entire life. Barry, you are, you are so missed. Sandy recorded that tribute especially for the upcoming show, Barry Cryer, A Celebration, which is taking place at the Lyric Theatre in London on the 13th of June. There's a bill of some of Dad's favourite entertainers, from Bill Bailey and Harry Hill to old friends like Michael Palin, Maureen Lippman, Giles Brandreth and Stephen Fry. It'll be a night of celebration not just of Dad, but of the the gentler version of an art form that Dad made his life's work, making people laugh. And with the Royal Variety Charity benefiting, tickets for the show are available now at nymaxtheatres.com. And we can't finish without leaving the final word to Dad himself. And what could sum up the man better than this gem of a one-act play masquerading as a joke? There's a man sitting opposite a sweet old lady on a train. The train leaves the station. She takes a Bible out of her bag, reads silently. Next station, Bible back in the bag. Same thing, train sets off. Next station, now he's riveted. And it happens a third time, and he's getting off the train soon. He's got to know. And he said, do forgive me. And she said, yes. Every time the train leaves the station, you take your Bible out of your bag and read from it. Yes, yes, I do, yes. When we get to the next station, you put your Bible back in the bag. Yes, yes. Do forgive me, but why do you do this? And she said, why don't you fuck off? (laughs) I love that. When we recorded the Now Where Were We series of podcasts, we swiftly realised that just because the microphones were off... It didn't mean to say that the show's co-host, my dad, and our guests would stop yielding pearls of wisdom. 
The perfect example came in our very first recording with the brilliant Joe Brown. As we were packing up, Joe brought out one of his ukuleles that had formerly been owned by Mussolini, George Formby, and then his friend, George Harrison. And although we missed the story behind it, which was a shame, we quickly flicked the microphones back on in time to hear him play it. So to play us out, here's Joe Brown creating alchemy with that historic uke. What's so wonderful is that you can also hear Dad in the background enjoying every note. Supportive, positive, and a fan of others, right to the end. You see, Dad was an old rocker at heart, never happier than when he was slapping his thigh along to an animal's track or leading the family sing-along. Which is why it's been so lovely to be able to showcase the music of my sister Jack's band, The Kites, along with her husband Matt and their great friend Mark, who you can hear in the background of this podcast and providing our gently soothing theme tune. There's a link to their work in the show's description. Well, all that remains to say is that I hope to see as many of you as possible on the 13th of June for Barry Cryer, A Celebration in London. So until then, I've been Bob Cryer, and thanks for listening to, supporting and celebrating, not just Now Where Were We, the podcast, but also my dad, Barry Cryer. It's been a pleasure sharing him with you all. Take it away, Joe. decisions for your company you look for the no-brainers and if you have a lot of mailing to do stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer it streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient which makes you less busy mail checks invoices legal documents and everything you need to keep your business running with stamps.com seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.